Our scripture reading this morning will be from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 33. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. It's great to see you this morning. Glad that you're here to worship God with us. Back in July, we began a six-month project together as a congregation called Evangelism in Sync. And every month, we have a different challenge. Last month, the month of September, the challenge was to invite our friends and neighbors to come and see. And let me just say, you did a phenomenal job in that challenge. I have met people this past month and, and seen people that have been uh, both for our gospel meeting and to our worship assemblies that, that, that I've never met before and I know many here haven't and we're so thankful that you took part in that. Don't stop doing those things. Don't stop praying as we did back in July for those that you know that need to hear God's word. Don't stop continually thinking about ways in which you can bring others to Christ. It's October now, so it's time for a new challenge. Are you ready? It's like Mission Impossible. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, all right? For October, we are going to, as a congregation, give special attention to being kind and welcoming to our visitors. We're gonna give special attention to being kind and welcoming to our visitors. And I'm gonna give you three practical things to keep in mind starting today. Practical thing number one, we're reviving the name amnesty program. That is, you can ask anybody in this assembly what their name is. And we're gonna promise that we're not going to get upset, even if we've been a member here for years or for decades. You can ask anybody, anytime, until the end of the year, anybody that you want to, we can walk up and say, hi, what is your name? Would you, would you share your name with me? You can ask. Okay, that's, that's name amnesty. And we're not gonna get upset because we want to know each other better. And one of the best ways you can say I love you to someone without actually saying those words is to know and use their name. Kindness and welcoming to visitors. Thing number two, practical thing number two, sit in a different place in the auditorium from time to time. 
And don't get upset, don't get upset if somebody is in your seat, quote unquote, okay? These are dangerous waters I'm treading, I understand, okay? Somebody asked me my name and then they sat in my seat this morning, okay, yeah. You can sit anywhere you want in the auditorium. But things, think about this. We all use the same basic traffic patterns as we come into and out of the building. And just sitting in one of these different four sections, you'll see people and you'll interact with people that maybe you haven't seen or interacted with in quite a while or maybe ever. So that's thing number two, being kind and welcoming, especially to the visitors in our assembly. And then here's thing number three. Okay, this is a new one. Be careful about, I'm going to call them holy huddles. A holy huddle is when you and your friends or you and someone who is maybe if you're a deacon and, and they're, they're, you're doing an area of work, something like that, you're huddled up together after services or before services, you're huddled up together. And that's a holy huddle. They're good things. Okay, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. A holy huddle is a good thing where people stand and they visit and we've got friendships and relationships, but beware of those and be aware of the people who are passing by your holy huddle. Okay, so I'm asking you for the month of October to pay attention. There are holy huddles that happen out here in the parking lot. Lots of them happen out here by the playground after services a lot. They, they happen in our auditorium. A lot of them happen up this aisle. A lot of them happen back there at the back. Holy huddles happen, you know, they happen out in the foyer. It's just, it's just the way it works. It's the way we do things as a congregation. Be cognizant of those. And for the month of October, pay attention to who is passing by my holy huddle, okay? My, my conversation that's important, that's good, that's uplifting, who's passing by that needs attention. Be kind and welcoming to those who are visitors among us. Sound good? That's your challenge for the month of October. And with that in, in mind this morning, we're gonna talk about worship assemblies. Worship assemblies. Open your Bibles if you haven't already done so to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're gonna use this chapter to talk about this lesson this morning. 1 Corinthians 14. We have gathered together this morning to honor and to worship the God of heaven. We do this regularly as a congregation and this is intended by God. This is his design. We're not doing this just because we got together and voted that this would be a good idea. We're doing this because this is what God wants his people to do. He wants them to gather regularly and joyfully. He wants them to come together and to spend time, not just building each other up, but praising and worshiping him. And that's what we want to do. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, Psalm 122, verse one. When we assemble, we're glad to come into God's presence. We're glad to come before him and to bring the sacrifices of praise, the fruit of our lips, Hebrews 13 and verse 15. And when you look at 1 Corinthians 14, the passage deals with a worship assembly that was happening 2,000 years ago. Now listen carefully. There are some differences between what you read happening in 1 Corinthians 14 and what happens in our assembly. Specifically, the difference is 2,000 years ago, they had the ability to perform miracles. Some of the Christians in that church in Corinth could speak in tongues. That means simply that they could speak in languages that they'd never studied. They just knew their language miraculously all of a sudden. Others could interpret what was being said. Even though they'd never studied the language, immediately they could just interpret what was being said. It was a miracle. 
Others had the ability to prophesy. They had information that was being directly downloaded from God into their minds. And as prophets, they were able to speak to the church and to tell the church what God wanted them to say or what God wanted them to do. And so in 1 Corinthians 14, what had happened in the worship assemblies in Corinth was that people became competitive. And the people, especially it seems, the people that had the ability to speak in tongues, they thought they were at the top of the heap. They thought that they were the most important and they thought that they needed to be heard. And so somebody over in this section would stand up and start speaking in a tongue and somebody over here would say, no, I've got the gift of prophecy. I need to prophesy. And they would stand up and then somebody over here would say, no, I've got the ability to speak in tongues. And so they would stand up and all of a sudden there's chaos and confusion. There are all kinds of ungodly things happening in the assemblies. And that's why 1 Corinthians 14 is in the Bible. Because the apostle was writing to them to tell them what you're doing is not good. Think about the reasons why God wants us to gather for worship. As you look at 1 Corinthians 14, how do we know this is a worship assembly? Think about this. In verse 19, there's reference to being made to in church. The word church just means an assembly. 1 Corinthians 14, 19. He talks about how the whole church comes together in verse 23. Again, he talks about when you come together as a church, verse 26. In the churches, verse 33. God's not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches, it says in that passage. The passage makes a contrast between women asking their husbands questions at home versus speaking in the church in verse 35. So you can see from the passage in a number of places that the idea is these are Christians who are gathering for an assembly. They're gathering to worship God. They're gathering to learn and be instructed from God's word. These kinds of things are taking place. Notice who is present. This is where it gets to our evangelism in sync program. There are teachers in the church and there are people who are there to learn. As mentioned in a a number of verses in this chapter, verse two and three, verse six, verses 30 and 31, some teach and others listen to what's being taught, what's being revealed. There are in this assembly, both men and women. In verses 34 and 35, there are specific instructions about how God wants for women not to take a leading role in teaching and in having authority and they are to keep silent in that sense. Again, as you look at the passage, the passage mentions both believers and unbelievers. That's interesting. Verses 22 through 25, those who believe in Christ and those who do not yet believe in Christ. And they're both present in the assembly. I want you to just stop right there and think about this. 1 Corinthians 14 indicates, brothers and sisters and friends, that there is an evangelistic dimension to our worship services. We do not gather primarily for evangelism, but there is an evangelistic dimension to what we're doing as God's people. Because there are people who come in who are unbelievers very frequently. And what do they see and what do they experience and what do they hear and what do they learn? Those kinds of questions are dealt with in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 14. And then there's this term, the ESV has the word outsiders. If you have another translation like the New King James, and you're looking at like verse 16, the uninformed sometimes, the Bible translates it that way. The English versions translate it that way. 
Outsiders, those who are uninformed, those who don't really know what's happening and why it's happening and what's taking place. When we gather for worship, God has some expectations. There are some things that he wants to see and we need to pay attention to his will. We need to pay attention as a congregation to what it is that God desires when we assemble. With that in mind, let's look this morning. What can God, what does God expect to see? And what could, if you ask it this way, what could visitors to our assemblies expect? What should they be able to expect is going to happen in our worship assemblies? Number one this morning, as you look at 1 Corinthians 14, God intends for these assemblies to be assemblies where worship takes place. If you're looking at 1 Corinthians 14 in verse 25, you'll find the word. It's an outsider, one who is uninformed, and he hears and understands what's happening, and the Bible says he falls on his face and he will worship God. You see that in your Bible? The Greek word there for worship is the word proskuneo. It's one of many words in the New Testament that has to do with worship. And it means literally to fall down on one's face and to express submission or express reverence to a high authority figure. Proskuneo, if you imagine a, a, a peasant coming before a king and falling down on his face, that's proskuneo. And that's what we're doing when we worship. We are coming in before an almighty and an all-loving, but a holy God, and we are falling down in reverence before him. Matthew 2 verse 2 uses this same word, proskuneo. Where is he, the wise men said, who is born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. We've come to fall down before him. And that's one of the things that needs to take place in our assembly. We can come into an assembly like this and we can sing the songs and we can listen to the prayers being prayed and yet still not really worship. It's possible to do and I fear that some people do that regularly. They're not really paying attention to the God that we are worshiping. And so according to 1 Corinthians 14, worship is to be intentional. It is something that we desire to do. It's something that we intend to accomplish It's something that we are aiming for. I want God to be praised by my lips, by the way I'm singing, by the way I'm saying amen, by the things that are being uh, being said and done, but I also want him to be praised from my heart. Listen to my heart, oh God. Listen to what it's saying to you. It's intentional. Worship is also, according to this passage, congregational. There are times when you and I can worship individually. You can sing praises to God as you're driving down the road in your car or as you're quiet alone out in a secluded place. You can offer prayers to God of worship in other places besides the assembly, but there is a regular time each week when God intends the church to come together to worship. And then according to this passage, worship is according to God's design. It's by his authority. God has told us very explicitly what he wants to happen when the congregation, when the church assembles for worship. Again, he talks about the role of women and the role of men in this passage. And then in verse 37, he says, the things that I write, let everyone who's spiritual acknowledge that these things are the commandment of the Lord. This is God's word. This is not just Paul's opinion in 1 Corinthians 14 about how congregational assemblies are to take place. 
Worship. Is God being honored? Is he being lifted up by you, by the way you worship? It's a question about our assemblies. Second this morning, what can someone reasonably expect from a worship assembly, from a congregational assembly like this one? The next is edification. And I just want you to notice how many times the word edification, maybe your translation has, like what Randy was reading a moment ago, built up. And that's what edify means. An edifice is an old way of saying a building, a structure. And so to edify means that you build up. It's like putting one brick down and putting the mortar there and then putting another brick and putting the mortar there and putting another brick and putting a mortar there. That's what it means to build up. It means to edify. And one of the purposes of our assemblies, according to this passage, is that people must be built up. They must be instructed. They must be built into something that they were not before. It's a vital purpose for our assembling. In verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 14, The purpose of our assembly for upbuilding and encouragement. In verse five, do all things so that the church may be built up. You wanna know what they were doing in Corinth? With all this chaos, you know, three or four people trying to talk at the same time and nobody can understand what any of them are saying. The apostles saying nobody's being built up by that. That's chaos, that's confusion. There's nothing good happening. Do things in such a way that the church can understand and that people can be built up. Strive to excel, verse 12, in building up the church. Those of us who lead in worship, whether you lead a prayer, whether you lead a song, whether you lead by by preaching a sermon or teaching a Bible class, those of us who lead, we need to carefully ask the question, all of us, Am I striving to excel in building up the church by the way that I conduct myself publicly? Is this my aim? Is this my goal in the assembly? I want people to be uplifted. I want them to be edified. Verse 17, the other person is not being built up when they don't understand what's happening. They can't be built up. They can't learn anything. And then again, verse 26, let all things be done for edification. And so one of the questions we are to ask ourselves when it comes to our worship assemblies is edification, is building up our aim as we worship and praise the God of heaven together. Number three, what does God want to see in our worship assemblies? Exhortation. Exhortation. Look again at verse three. Encouragement, that's exhortation, and consolation or comfort, some translations say. These are things that God wants to see when his people come together, that people may be encouraged or exhorted and that they may be consoled. Let's just talk about those words each in turn for a moment. To exhort someone means that I am trying to persuade you. I am trying to get you to do something that maybe you're not doing or maybe you've forgotten about. Persuasion, exhorting someone means that you are persuading them to do something. And then consolation means that when we realize that we fall short, because all of us do, Romans 3.23, consolation or comfort means that we leave people with hope that we talk about the forgiveness that's available only in Christ Jesus and we talk about the fact that we struggle and that we, could, we continue to put one foot in front of the other as we look to Jesus and we look to him for his, his salvation. That's consolation. 
And both of those are needed in our worship assemblies. And so, in our assemblies, there ought to be, brothers and sisters and friends, there ought to be persuasive appeals and requests. Those ought to be part of what we're, we're not just going through the book of Romans just one more time, just because we got to fill the time. We are trying to persuade one another, to exhort one another, to love and good works, to do what's right and to oppose what's wrong. There's a challenge that's involved in exhortation to put away evil. The early Christian preachers, they would say, be saved from this wicked generation, Acts 2 verse 40. Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and judgment to come in his preaching, Acts 24, 25. And those themes need to be heard today as well. People need to be exhorted and challenged to put away evil and to pursue what is good, to look at what's noble and right, what God has deemed to be holy, and to follow those things with all our hearts, Romans 12, verse 9. Abhor what is evil and cling, hold on to what is good. That's exhortation. But here's the thing that sometimes we forget. When we exhort people, we always must leave them with hope, always. Because the gospel is a hopeful message. The gospel is a message that talks about forgiveness and it talks about salvation and it talks about how God wants us to change. He doesn't wanna leave us as we are, but there is hope and consolation and comfort for those who are weak and mournful and sorrowful over what's happened in their lives. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14. Do our worship services exhort people? Do they lift up comfort and then encourage to do what's right? It's what God's looking for. Next, as you look at 1 Corinthians 14, worship services, worship assemblies, what are they to be all about? The word is clarity or if you like, understanding what is taught. And again, as you look at it, 1 Corinthians 14, the, the speaking in tongues thing. Don't speak in tongues, Paul says, unless there's somebody to interpret because it's unclear what's happening and what's being said. If people are speaking in languages that nobody else understands, there is a lack of clarity. There's a lack of understanding. And so he asks questions like this one. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 8, if the trumpet or bugle gives an indistinct or uncertain sound, then who will get ready for battle? For centuries, soldiers on the battlefield would be called, they would be mustered to their place of assembly by a trumpet or a bugle. And the apostles asking the question, if somebody's over there playing a jazz tune on his bugle, the soldiers are gonna look at each other and they're gonna, well, what is this all about? What are we supposed to do? Are they wanting us to assemble? Are they wanting us to retreat, wanting us to advance? What is it that we're supposed to be doing? And the same principle applies to worship. Clarity is important, it's essential. Are we being clear and understandable in the way that we do things? 1 Corinthians 14, 19, the apostle himself, he speaks in tongues, by the way, Paul does. But he says, nevertheless, in church, he's talking about the assembly. In the assembly, I, Paul, would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Just five simple words that people understood are more valuable than 10,000 words that nobody understands. That's his point. And therefore, when we think about clarity and we think about that when it comes to our worship assemblies, we ought to have some goals. Think about this. 
we want to be especially clear so that the gospel of Christ will have free course because there are always people who are listening, who are participating, who may not know as much about the gospel as God would have them to know yet. Second Thessalonians three verse one. And so our prayer is we want the gospel to run freely in people's lives. We want people to be encouraged to receive the word of God in our worship assemblies. We want to say things plainly. Matthew 12 verse, or excuse me, Mark chapter 12 verse 37 speaks about Jesus and how the common people heard him gladly. They listened to Jesus and he spoke to them in such a way that they could understand. And that was a blessing. We are living brothers and sisters in a post-Christian society. There was a time in our country where you could kind of assume that most everybody went to some kind of church somewhere, but we are living now in a post-Christian society. And what that means is we need to think about in our worship assemblies, the language that we use. And sometimes we need to explain it. What we're saying is not wrong, but we need to explain what we mean. For example, are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Most of you probably say, well, I understand what you mean, John. A lot of people have no idea. Years and years ago, a young lady came to the church building where I was preaching. This was during the week and she wanted to, she had, she had some things she had, wanted to ask questions about. But I invited her to our worship services and she said, well, well, what do you do? And I tried to explain and she was from, she was from a religion that had no semblance of, of, of a resemblance to Christianity at all. And she said, well, I've seen on TV where there's a priest and there are candles and, there, and I said, no, we don't have any of those things. I'm just saying people are in a different place and we're going to have to explain carefully what we mean. Oh, and let me just say this, as a congregation, Let's think about some of the terminology that we use that's kind of insider code language among us and let's make sure that we're regularly explaining what that is. Special contribution. Oh, it happens four times a year, that's great. That's wonderful, you guys are exceedingly generous. What is that and why do we do it? We need to explain that regularly. Or if I said to you, there's a Jabberwacky on Monday night, oh, and there's also a Mega Monday on Monday night, and then later on this week, WEI is gonna meet, and then after that, we're gonna have Lads to Leaders, okay? Most of you know all of what that means, but think about somebody that walks in off the street. We need, as the people of God, to be clear about what we're doing and why we're doing it, but especially when it comes to our worship assembly. These are things we need to pay attention to as the people of God. Next, participation. What is God looking for in our worship assemblies? He's looking for your participation. You are not observers observing me right now. You are participants in the proclamation of God's word because even though there's one person preaching from God's word to you, all of us with obedient hearts are to listen to God's word and say, yes, Lord, I will do your will. I will obey. I will bring my life into conformity with what your word teaches me to do. We are participants in worship. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, 16, if you will. How can anyone who's in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you are saying? Goes back to the clarity principle. 
But notice what's implied here. What's implied is that there is participation on the part of the outsider. Someone comes in and they worship along with you. Think about what happens when we participate in worship, ways in which we participate in worship. We can say amen when prayers are offered. You know what amen means? Amen means let it be so. Amen means this is my heart as well. Psalm 106 verse 48, the whole congregation of the Israelites said amen at the end of worship, at the end of prayer. We can say amen when agreeing with teaching and with examples that we see. Somebody decides to be baptized, we can say amen. I agree with what's happened. That's a, that's a decision I want to affirm. When somebody teaches something that we believe is true, we can say amen, I agree with that. I'll say this, because I'm a preacher. Amens are encouraging to preachers. They really are. I remember growing up hearing churches where I worshiped saying amen all the time. And it was sometimes loud and thunderous, amen. The preacher was saying some things that people really needed to get into their hearts and minds. And he was saying it with passion and with enthusiasm and people were saying, amen, I agree. There is nothing inherently sinful about you starting that habit again, nothing. I'm just telling you. And I wanna say something. We are talking about the worship assembly and we're talking about participation in the worship assembly. And sometimes you saying amen can even wake up a brother or sister elsewhere in the assembly. Oh yeah, I need to pay attention to what he's saying. This is important. Amen. All right, I'm off my soapbox now. Next, participation. We can join when we sing praises. It is one of the saddest things for a New Testament Christian to come and to sit in an assembly like this and never open their mouth in praise and song. God wants you to do just that. I will sing with the spirit. I will sing with the understanding also. 1 Corinthians 14, 15. My grandfather, who I loved tremendously, I sat next to him for years growing up. He could not carry a tune in a bucket. Mom knows she grew up with him as well. He was tone deaf, if ever there is such a thing. There was a long period in his life where he would not sing, my grandmother told me, but it was before I was around. I'll tell you this, he would make jokes and self-referential about, you know, I'm not the guy they're gonna call to lead singing and we'd all kind of chuckle and things like that, but he really wasn't. He wasn't the guy you wanted to lead singing. But you know what made an impression on me? He couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, but every time I sat next to him, he sang it made a difference. And even if you can't carry a tune in a bucket, make a joyful noise to the Lord, that's what participation is all about. That's what God wants in our assembly. When we are talking about worship and we're talking about participation, you can open your Bible, you can read along, you can listen intently to what's being said. This is how we bring honor and glory to God and listen, it makes a difference with visitors. It makes a difference when they see you and hear you worshiping like this. These are people who love the Lord. And as it says here in 1 Corinthians 14, truly God is among these people. That's what our participation does. As you look at 1 Corinthians 14, what does God wanna see in our assemblies? He wants to see decency and order. Again, remember what was happening? They're all fussing and fighting about whose gifts are the best. There's all kinds of rancor and all kinds of confusion in the church. 
if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there only be two or at most three, the apostle writes, and let each in turn, let someone interpret. If there's no one to interpret, then keep silent. Don't say anything. Well, but Paul, what about my gift? What about what, about what you've given, what God's given me? Keep silent. Speak to yourself and to God, he says. He goes on in verse 31. You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be built up, be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. What does God want to see in his worship assemblies? When God's people are gathered, he wants to see peace. That doesn't mean that we are not enthusiastic in our worship. That does not mean that we are subdued. What it means is that we are at peace among ourselves and that we are reverential and respectful in the way that we approach our God. That's what it means. He's not the author of confusion, but of peace. This is what he desires in the assembly. Decency and order. 1 Corinthians 14.40 caps off the chapter by saying, let all things be done decently and in order. Putting things in order, putting things in their proper place. Let everything be done like that. Consider the following. Our worship services demand thoughtful planning. Thoughtful planning. There are literally dozens of people each week who are involved in various facets of what happens in our worship assembly. It takes thought, it takes planning, it takes an appropriate level of reverence. Doesn't mean we can't laugh and sometimes say some things that are, that are humorous, but we are coming into the presence of Almighty God. Reverence is demanded. There's also joyful cooperation. The song leader's leading a song that I don't like cooperate joyfully. The scripture reader is reading something that, that, you know, he's reading for a translation that I don't use. Cooperate joyfully. Joyful cooperation. The preacher's preaching a sermon and I already know all that stuff. Cooperate joyfully because there may be some things that you need to be reminded of. Cooperate joyfully as the people of God. Let all things be done decently and in order. And then finally, what is God looking for in worship assemblies? According to 1 Corinthians 14, he is looking for peace. Visitors have the right to expect, and God expects to see when he looks down from heaven, he expects to see peace among his people. Not people who are at each other's throats, not people who are confusing uh, one another and causing confusion in the church. God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of peace. This is what he desires. The problem with the church in Corinth was that Paul says they are full of envy and strife and divisions, and he calls these things, quote unquote, carnal things. He says when those are your motives and that's the way you treat people, you're, you're full of envy and conflict and that's, that's what you're all about, you're carnal. Stop doing that. Stop treating each other that way. That's not what God produces in our lives. God produces peace in the way that we relate to one another. And so, there ought to be among us an obvious love for each other. Obvious. Not just something that we say with our mouths, but we show with our lives. There ought to be a genuine gladness at being together. There ought to be a willingness to work through differences, and there will be differences among us. There ought to be a willingness to cooperate and to work through differences, because when we gather and assemble for worship, peace is a priority where God's will is concerned.
I say again, as we think about worship, unity, the way we worship, the way we relate to each other, it demonstrates the love of God. We are billboards for Christianity. And this is because of what Jesus has done for us and what he produces in us as we follow him with all of our hearts. Our worship assemblies, there are some things we all need to hear from God's word about the way we worship, about the reasons we worship, and about our goals and aims when we come together to worship. These assemblies praise and proclaim the greatness and the goodness of our God, but they are also for the edification and the building up of the participants. Let's never forget why and how God wants us to worship. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a New Testament Christian, but you'd like to become one. Believe that Jesus Christ is God's son, confess his name, repent of your sins, and then be baptized. When someone is baptized, they are being born again. John chapter three, verse five. They are coming into the family of God, receiving the adoption as sons. Galatians chapter four, verses four through six. And maybe you're ready to make that commitment this morning. Or maybe you'd like to stop and, and, and have us stop and ask for prayers on your behalf. We'd be glad to do that as well. If you need to respond to heaven's invitation, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?